Welcome to Studio Break. I'm your host, David Linaway. Today we're bringing you number seven. That's right, lucky number seven, the seventh edition of Studio Break. We've got Adam Mysock. He'll tell you all about growing facial hair in the fifth grade. And coincidentally, it takes five months for him to finish a painting. All that and more coming up, so please stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Um, today we're joined by Adam Mysock. Hello, Adam. How are you doing? I'm doing well, babe. How's, how's the weather in New Orleans today? It's a nice balmy 45 degrees this morning. Oh, it's... Unseasonable. It's a little bit nicer than the uh, the 30 degree wind and rain uh, that's been up here. So, um, And so if I could just ask you to just do the honorable traditional thing of uh, uh, telling us where you earn your degrees, and obviously you're currently residing in New Orleans. Could you tell us what you're doing there? I got my Bachelor of Fine Arts from Tulane University in New Orleans. I went up to Southern Illinois at Carbondale for my Master of Fine Arts, and now I'm back in New Orleans teaching at Tulane. I'm a professor of practice, and I teach all levels of painting and drawing. Sweet, sweet. Um, and so, again, we've got a lot of questions for you here. But um, my first one is going to be a nice non, non sequitur to, to kind of get you loose, Adam. Um, what was the last Christmas song that you heard today? Because I know that you're a big Christmas song fan. I actually just got the new Michael Bublé Christmas CD. I was listening to it, and I was in the background, so I don't know exactly what the last song that played. Uh, but he does a version of a Mariah Carey song that is kind of humorous and how sort of ridiculous it is. Gosh, that's that's a that's a weird uh, genre. I don't I don't. There's a male version of Santa Baby, which is kind of bizarre to listen to as well. Yeah, I have I have a running joke of uh, wanting wanting them to do a, a a Saturday Night Live skit where they have the guy that does Sean Connery uh, pretend to sing Santa Baby because I think Sean Connery singing Santa Baby would be really funny. But um, I, I digress there, Adam. Um, so did you did you grow up in Cincinnati then? Yeah. 
I was born and raised in Cincinnati, lived there until I was 18, and then came down here. And after grad school, I went back to Cincinnati for about a year and a half. And so, I mean, obviously, just so most of the time you've spent is really between Cincinnati and, um, you know, grad or Tulane, right? And then yep. Carbondale. Um, yep. So, I mean, I don't know how, I guess, in, in terms of looking at all of those places, really, I guess, is are there, do they influence you in different ways? Yeah, I think they are connected in a lot of ways. I mean, I grew up with uh, an English teacher for a mom, so I was always surrounded by folk tales, and those always hit on a lot of sort of inspiration points for my paintings. And Cincinnati, Carbondale, and New Orleans all sort of have their own folk traditions, and the stories that go along with them are sort of what have guided a lot of the art that's come out of my studio in a while. Cool, cool. And so we talked about this, and I know that you kind of made fun of me because I, I, I've been up for about an hour. Um, when did you get up? <laughs> uh, this morning, I officially got up at 5.45. And so where does this come from? Because I, I know that, you know, even, even especially since, I've, uh, since I knew you in the past, you were, you were one of those, those guys that got into the studio really early and, and you know, kind of, you know, almost, a, I guess, what, like a six to, six to three-er? Yeah, that'd be safe to say. And it definitely happened, well, it's something that's sort of always been there. Uh, my mom always tells stories about her and my dad waking up, going into my room to get me up as a toddler, and I'd already be outside walking around in the yard or something. And So it's always been sort of my time of the day, and I've always been a whole lot more productive in the morning. As soon as 3 o'clock comes around, it's sort of relaxing time for me. Sure, and I mean, I don't know. Um, in terms of that, I mean, I mean, do you do you do you just kind of feel that need to kind of get up and then, then just produce, or um, when you go to the studio, I mean, is it kind of mixed up in terms of managing different different, I guess, uh, you know, things that you have going on? Yeah, I mean, I think I could probably talk about it as sort of a an ethical set of rules I've set for myself that I have to get up and meet a certain criteria by a certain time of the day. Um, you know, on a typical day, I'd be in my office slash studio by about 7.30. I'd have my planning done for classes that day or that week, done by 8.30, and then I'd be painting by 9. Um, and I don't know what it is about the way my brain works, but it's just, it functions more clearly in the morning. I don't mm -hmm. have a lot of hang-ups or emails that I've read that are sort of rolling around in my mind. and So the paintings happen a little bit more naturally, a little bit more fluidly at that point. And, you know, I just feel like I need to be active, being productive. And so that's when it happens, I guess. You know? Sure, sure. Well, and, and so in terms of studio work, then, um, it's a nice nice uh, softball here. Um, could, you, could you talk a little bit about that evolution? Because I know that, you know, just from seeing things in the past, you've, you've kind of gone under a pretty interesting arc. You know, I've, I've even seen kind of really old work of yours that was representational, you know, just student work, and to kind of see that, that way that you kind of opened up into incorporating abstraction and, and then obviously doing, you know, what you're currently doing, which is some pretty pretty highly realistic stuff. Yeah. Um, I think it was pretty typical in high school. You know, we always got praised if we were able to translate what we saw with our eyes to a flat surface and you know I really 
felt that that was part of my identity. And so coming into undergrad, I was pretty representational, as I think most sort of high school students are. When I got here, I had some pretty fantastic teachers that got me thinking more and more about what I could say or what I could communicate with those representational elements. And then uh, towards the end of my undergrad, I started to get into some of the more abstract elements as emotive sort of carriers in the message. So started to really combine the representational and the relatively abstract sort of color field or texture field kind of imagery. And then when I got into grad school, I tried to carry over a lot of the sort of stylistic tendencies I had from undergrad, but I realized it needed to be sort of a next stage in my development. And so I started to really fall in love with mark making and the sort of idea that form itself could carry content. And so the work got much more minimal, much more sort of streamlined in terms of color or mark. And, you know, I, I really developed a conviction about that that carried me through at least two years of grad school. Um, but I think at the end of that two-year period, I was sort of struggling with the readings that I got from the paintings or from the viewers of the paintings. They weren't necessarily picking up on the content that I was sort of hoping to explore. And so at the time, I think I called it more of a, an existential dilemma. But in hindsight, it maybe feels more like a, an epiphany. But I just decided that if communicating was maybe my main concern or my main priority with painting, to move back towards representational um, seemed like a much more effective or efficient way of doing that. So the third year of grad school really pushed back towards sort of object-oriented or observational painting. And then after grad school, I just sort of fell in love with some sort of art historical references at times and started utilizing more representational art historical references as a beginning point on the conversations, if that makes any kind of sense. Right. Um, you know, people were familiar with some of the images that I was appropriating, and they were able to bring sort of the start of the conversation with them from that previous knowledge, and then the alterations that I offered sort of continued the conversation. Sure. Well, and it's interesting just to kind of hear you talk about, um, you know, I, I, I remember you know, a number of those bodies of work that were really kind of abstract. And I know that, you know, Richard Prince is somebody that, you know, you really seem to have a fondness for. Um, yeah. And I don't know, it's just interesting listening to you talk about it because it, re it just really reminds me of, of the way that, you know, I kind of felt for a time where, you know, it was difficult to kind of get really, I don't know, a communicated message, you know, through something like abstraction. Because I... I kind of had felt I, I had spent a long time making work, or at least a, a long time, <laughs> maybe a couple of years, making abstract work and kind of feeling like I wasn't communicating, um, and then wound up going back through to representational, you know, kind of kind of route. And so I, I don't know. I, I think that's interesting how, you know, people really kind of fork into these different different bodies of work, you know. And, and I mean, I think even even now, you know, you'll see people that are. Um, kind of drawn back to abstraction or, or kind of working in these big, you know, loop kind of ways. Um, do you, yeah. do you think I mean, that's there's definitely things I miss about the abstract body of work? Um, I think I was definitely working with a 
stronger conviction at that point. I had a, a really deliberate visual vocabulary. If there was a rectangular shape that entered the panel from the left but stopped before it got to the right, that was sort of the, an indicator of a linguistic thought. And then uh, I was sort of also doing a lot of research into linguistics, and so different marks stood in for different sounds or, or letters. And I think that the conviction I had then was sort of admirable in hindsight, but ultimately maybe blinded me to some of the weaknesses of the work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's funny you joked about history earlier, but that's actually one of the questions that I had kind of, um, you know, what, what there seems to be like an importance of obviously you've kind of talked about, um, um, you know, fables in the past or, you know, certain mythologies or history. Um, is, is there anything else that you could kind of bring to that? I mean, obviously, you know, the way that you're talking about your current work, kind of referencing that these are historical things. Um, I don't know, what is it about some of those ideas that, that kind of influence your work and kind of, um, you know, become things that you've really invested in over the course of, you know, just studying? Yeah, I've thought about it a lot recently when it comes to my interest in history, my interest in folk tales, and I have no idea where it started. I mean, I'm sure I could go back to some sort of childhood uh, bedtime story or something like that, but I've always had a fascination in sort of moral or ethical structures that people choose to live by for themselves, so more on an individual or personal level. Um, And in developing my own set of systems or beliefs to not just paint by but to live by um i've really always sort of found those characters in history that seem to really stand for something most inspiring so the abraham lincoln's teddy roosevelt's and george washington's i mean it's certainly a bit of a a one-sided view it's not necessarily a complete understanding of these people as humans but I've I've come to embrace the sort of one-sidedness that might have been presented to me in something like elementary school where you know you read that Christopher Columbus came over and founded America and you know it's something that's completely naive to consider and to you know put your faith in but at least in, in looking at the legends of these characters I think that I've sort of set for myself a set of uh, standards or beliefs and how I should react or how I should behave in everyday interactions. Sure. Sure. And uh, do you have, do you have a character or like a a story that you're, you're, I guess, most, most drawn to or. The first memory that I have of this kind of uh, righteous uh, sort of ethical type of thing comes from a childhood book. I think it was called something like Mike Mulligan and the Steam Shovel. Mm-hmm. And essentially it was this guy who had a, a relatively simply functioning machine and the machine did all the work. And it was a lot like a John Henry story where the city was developing around him, but he still believed in his simple machine. And his machine did the work, but ultimately killed itself in the process. And I don't know, there's something sort of amazing to me about this fictional character who would be willing to die or sacrifice themselves for a sort of traditional set of beliefs. 
Well, gosh, you you lead every question into something that, or at least every answer rather, into something that I was going to ask because my my next question was just going to be what, you know, what is that importance of tradition to you? You know, I, I know that, you know, obviously um, we're going to be closely entering the holiday season, and you know, these are things that people kind of choose to participate in for you know various reasons. But um, you know what. Is, is it just to kind of find like a, um, you know, a way to live? Partially, yeah. I think, I mean, my answer might sort of be answering the question with the same question, but I fall in love with the idea of longevity. I mean, I think that today there's this sort of understanding of fame that it is, you know, in the immediate present. You know, we all want our 15 minutes of fame. We want to be the Kardashians or whatever. We want to get rich absolutely right now. But when I was growing up and, you know, the sort of earliest art history classes I had, what I found amazing was the fact that there were these products that outlasted their makers by hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to recognize a tradition that those things exist within and that you yourself exist within, I think keeps me into into the idea of tradition and the longevity of it. Um, And, you know, it's sort of interesting being a painter in a world that is really embracing digital media, new media, and, you know, these sort of really temporal art forms now. You know, I've had a thought or an analogy recently sort of keep rolling around in my head that what I'm doing is sort of the perfect axe in the age of chainsaws. I mean, there's so much more technology out there and maybe more efficient ways to get people to really enlarge their idea of being human through art, but ultimately painting and the tradition of painting is sort of what I've fallen in love with and what I sort of continue to push yeah, and, and I mean, I think it's just something that's so direct, you know. It's, um, you know, it, it, painting is just a, a subject, obviously, that has a lot of rich history. And, you know, in that in that regards, it's difficult because you, you're kind of, ma- you're kind of stacking up to all of that at once. And, um, yeah, but you also get to stand on it, too. Right, right. Like, there's an authority that a painting has that, I don't know if a DVD has yet or a DVD recording of a digital piece would have right now. You know, and something as silly as watching Antiques Roadshow and the price of painting versus pricing a print or pricing some other art form. Paintings are pretty consistently 20000 or up. And, you know, not that monetary value indicates authority by any means, but there's, there's something that's culturally embedded in painting that, it's nice to be able to sort of have at your back and sort of support you. Sure. Well, and you know, in a just in, in the way that you know you've talked about, you know, this digital, the, the digital age that we're in. You know, something that I always kind of think about in terms of students um, is because I'll every once in a while encounter you know someone that just doesn't really have um, a big drive in that capacity, and you know, you it makes me wonder, anyways, how much of that is really based on you know, growing up in this time where, you know, it's not really about knowing the information, it's about being able to access it, you know. And yeah. I've heard recently they've talked about, you know, in, in testing that, you know, people are, 
much more proficient at being able to research and find information than actually just know it. And it, it might be something that, you know, would be very practical in terms of looking up, you know, the address of something. But I think we're also talking now about just common knowledge. And so, I mean, I think just the idea of, you know, working through something and being able to think about it in terms of, uh, you know, like a, a remnant of it, of this, you know, time that you spent working on something. And, I mean, it's not to say by any means that artists working in digital formats are, you know, rushing or anything like that. I've actually recently tried to develop a digital piece sort of on a, a dare. And, you know, I fell in love with the process pretty quickly, but the product itself and, and watching it and sort of playing it back for a couple of people, I, I realized that there are people out there that can do this much more efficiently and effectively and so I think that, you know, sort of solidified for myself that I'm a painter, first and foremost. Right, right. Well, and so I've got a nice little segue here in, into uh, an important issue, um, yeah. maybe in terms of your work. <laughs> so, Adam, what's what's up with the with all the facial hair uh, infatuation? Um, and, you know, obviously I, I, I want to tie this in a little bit to this uh, element of, of masculinity that you've been kind of... Well, at least from since I've known you, you've kind of talked about this in your work and in a number of different bodies of work. Um, but um, yeah, what's what's the interest with with uh, trying to grow a beard that hangs down to your feet? And um, you know, what's what's the most you've been impressed with with what you've been able to grow? And then also, you know, what is, what is the importance of that masculinity or your identity in terms of trying to put that into your work or kind of search through it in terms of your work? <laughs> question. Alright, uh, let's see. I'll start with, I think, the most basic idea behind all of it, and that is that we, as humans, tend to embrace those things that set us apart from the group. And when I was in fifth grade, my voice started to change, and it was before anybody else, and so that sort of was my thing. I had a deeper voice, and I started shaving in the sixth grade, and that sort of continued it. And so the idea and the sort of love affair I have with facial hair stems from its ability to sort of offer me sort of a unique place in my social circles. Um, in high school, I did something I called Facial Hair Friday, where I would shave on Saturday night and then not again until Thursday night. Each Thursday night, I would shave a different design into my face, and they got pretty elaborate. I had a whole set of razors used for it, and Again, it was just a way to sort of keep me uh, as a unique individual in all of this nonsense of high school. Um, but I think there's also, again, it goes back to me falling in love with the past, um, seeing these black and white photos of these guys working in mines or, you know, the ubiquitous cowboy pictures of guys with facial hair. Just this group of characters and maybe sort of one-sided characters that really had a sense of right and wrong, um, something that I don't know if that truly existed at that point in time. I don't know if it truly exists in our state of the world as it is now. Um, but, you know, I think that these guys, the facial hair, the masculine attributes that were associated with them, sort of set up a system, a starting system for your beliefs, or my beliefs in this case. Um, so 
you know, masculinity, maybe more so the fundamental sort of rights or wrongs or um, chivalry type of traditions that are associated with it has sort of always been possible points of interest for me. I could always sort of start there if I had no other idea of where to begin. And so that's where a lot of the masculinity as subject matter came into the process. And it also really served as the base for the first full investigation I think I did in any series of work. It was my final year of undergrad. It was for my thesis show. Um, I was given the opportunity to really guide myself for a full year and you know, I was encouraged to look at masculinity from a really wide variety of angles, and it really highlighted the fact that you know art didn't have to be as direct or as one-sided as I thought I needed to be at the time. So it's still something that I've always loved. It's from my past, and it's something I can sort of go back to if I feel like things are getting out of hand. You know, sure, or have control over my face. Well, and it's funny you tell that story. I I won't go into specifics too much, but I, I do remember a certain critique in which um, uh, a faculty member questioned whether or not, or I believe a soon-to-be faculty member questioned whether or not uh, you could really grow facial hair at that age and, and kind of set that person straight, which was hilarious. Um, but, um, you know, you kind of bring up something that makes, you know, it makes me kind of think about some of those um, paintings that you're doing that were, I guess about, um, you know, the West and kind of cowboy culture, um, do you, is, is traveling something that you've, I guess, really explored or looked into? Cause I would think that, you know, and again, I, I kind of relate it to things that I'm interested in, um, certainly with architecture and landscape, you know, just visiting different places, but, you know, have you, um, do you have any plans to kind of go visit some, I don't know, ancient culture or, you know, I mean, it's certainly in my future, um, but I don't put a priority on it. And it's gonna, the answer is going to make me really sound like a homebody, but I think there's got to be a spatial distance and a mental distance between me and the myths that I'm evoking or relying on for the work. Otherwise, I mean, the familiarity that would come out of actually being in these places and, you know, recognizing that you know, Billy the Kid or any of these old sort of Western heroes really weren't good people at all, I think would sort of deconstruct um, some of the platforms that I rely on. And Mm -hmm. I know that that's problematic and it's something that I struggle with occasionally when it, you know, when I have too much time to think about it. Um, But, you know, again, the mental distance, the physical distance is really kind of important to me. And so, while I want to go travel many, many places once finances are all lined up, um, at this point it's not a priority just because I'm really happy with a sort of ignorance, and that's a terrible thing to say, but yes, sort of the reality of things. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I can certainly understand being, um, you know, fi- financially strained, um, yeah. but... Um, yeah, I, I, I'd be really interested to see how that winds up influencing things because, you know, for me, you know, and it's interesting how a lot of these podcasts, there's, there's these themes that are kind of being brought up. But, um, you know, I remember my BFA show being really invested in, in this kind of idealized Western landscape, 
And, you know, at the, at the time we're talking maybe like five abstract shapes that kind of loosely make up a landscape and, and really kind of basing it all off on these, on these kind of reflections of this trip that I took when I was a, a kid. And, you know, it's interesting to me now because I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought, I don't know, I, I guess, I guess I, I, after going out to those places, um, I think it's just kind of reinforced my, my love for them. But then I guess in, in more of the reverse front, I guess, since I, whenever I did go out West was when I did a number of residencies It it seems like all of those things also helped me just really reflect on where I'm at, wherever I'm at. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. You know, I, I like, and especially, you know, obviously, um, with what I'm interested in, you know, architectures everywhere, um, in a similar way, histories everywhere. So, Again, I think that that'll be an interesting, uh, interesting angle at some point, and, and a good a good place to lead in my next question, which is um, related to art history. Um, but um, you know, I, I know that there's a, a, a certain certain fellow artist named John Reddington who you uh, worked through a number of. Uh, uh, what is the character Mumtaz? Could you explain this a little Mumtaz. bit? Yeah. Uh, John and I were TAs for an art history survey class in grad school, and one day during a lecture on the Taj Mahal, which is, I guess, where Moon Taj Mahal was buried, John, I think he started it, but John uh, drew a picture or started a picture of Moon Taj Mahal doing something ridiculous and passed it to me, and I added to it and passed it back, and we got into this relatively long tradition of doing these collaborative cartoons and they were they started out as a way to pass the time um and i think you know in the first few generations of it i think i can remember just being in awe of john's ability to draw and it's uh, there's sort of an immediacy to his mark and it was sort of maybe a way for me to try to figure something similar out for myself um but as it went on and on and on, you know, I think it became a little bit more reactionary that what was going on in the day or in the newspaper of the day really started a lot of the drawings out. Um, so I think they really served as a good, really inconsequential starting point for any of the humor that I've been able to embrace in my work for the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it wasn't there before those, but I think John and that sort of drawing series did a, a lot for me to give me the confidence to keep the humor in it. Well, and that's, and that's why I bring it up, you know, obviously, the, you know, there's probably a select few of us out there that have seen these drawings, and um, I don't know, maybe maybe there's a need for a, you know, a real investigation <laughs> at some point. Um, but I, I bring it up because I know that there's a, you know, there's a certain level of playfulness that's been through your work, Um you know, I, I think of those like presidential series paintings that you did, and um, you know, just to kind of see some of the more recent ones, it seems like you've really kind of embraced some of those real whimsical, almost non nonsensical kind of things. And so that's that's kind of why I bring it up, just because I don't know. Do you do you find that you wind up pushing that aspect of it when you start a piece? Um, I, and, and I guess this could kind of you know be roped into the next couple of questions. Um, I mean, how do you, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to ju- separate too much, but I mean, do you find that that's something that maybe could be helpful in terms of just making, I don't know, something that really is kind of just crazy? 
I mean, I think for me, humor is the introduction. It's the idea that you can catch more flies with honey type of a thing. Um, but recently, I think it's actually something I've started to fight against a little, that these pieces, because they were sort of so based in humor at times, started to feel like they weren't going to be taken seriously. Um, and I, I don't want that to be the case. I'd like for humor to sort of open the door to a larger conversation, to sort of be the greeter, but ultimately to quiet itself down by the end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that when I look at art, uh, looking at guys like Wayne White who have what seems like a really sort of tongue-in-cheek kind of irreverential type of humor in his work, it's more entertaining. I, I don't like to be confronted with serious imagery or even when I'm watching movies or TV a lot of times, I don't love the dramas just because I think that it's too close to reality. I mean, if I need that or if I want that, I can so go interact with students or my colleagues and you know, have real experiences in that sense. And so I think that, for me, the humor gives me a break from it. I think that painting does something similar. I mean, I, I don't believe that painting exists to necessarily record a memory because I think photography could do that a whole lot better than I could with my brush. And so, you know, just the nature of painting and the sort of playful characteristic of inventing your own world and then presenting that in a two-dimensional surface it really aligns pretty quickly with humor, and so I don't think it's something that I, I want to avoid, but I don't want it to sort of carry the, the painting, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and, and to kind of, you know, you've talked a little bit about, you know, just the the kind of research that you do when it comes to, you know, uh, stories or storytelling or, you know, mythology, yeah. characters, etc. Um, how does, how does um, I guess that involve, I guess, images and art historical contexts. And then, I guess, and to follow up with this, it kind of is a good lead-in, but if you could just kind of walk us through what that process is like in, in terms of, you know, start to finish. How many years it takes, too? <laughs> well, How many I years it seems to take anymore, sorry? Um, the last solo show I had actually was sort of rolling around in my head for a while, the theme behind it, but it was really put into motion when I read uh, about Senator John Kyle saying something completely false on the Senate floor and then having his uh, assistant or his staff come out a, a day later saying that his statements weren't intended to be factual. Uh, and it just, <laughs> the idea that we live in a society that, you know, we can make up lies and present them as fact, and it's absolutely fine. You know, that started out the, the show. From there, I started thinking about, you know, visually presenting both blatant lies and sort of very subtle lies in the same piece to sort of create a hierarchy of truth. And so I wanted to take on some relatively well-known um, American paintings just so that, you know, a viewer would quickly recognize some of the most inaccurate things, but maybe some of the subtle things would get lost in that conversation. And I wanted to play with our most iconic sort of truth teller and honest Abe came to mind. And so in doing the research for that body, 
I focused on paintings, American paintings, or paintings by American artists um, done during Abraham Lincoln's lifetime. So there might have been some potential that he would have seen them. I wanted to tie in several layers of storytelling. So I went to the biblical story of Abraham and started painting Abraham Lincoln as biblical Abraham. Um, some of the imagery that gets superimposed in those comes from paintings of various stories from the Bible. Um, it's really a much more layered and complex process than it probably needs to be. But when I start thinking about storytelling and folktales in general, for me, it's always been a really visual thing, but maybe more mentally so than sort of outwardly. Uh, so when I read a story or I hear a story, I'm in my head really trying to visualize characters or settings. And the way that I do that is to sort of mine my own library of images. You know, if I hear a story about a river, you know, I'm, I've got a whole set of images in my mind of the Ohio River from Cincinnati or the Mississippi River from Carbondale or uh, New Orleans. But I also have, because of my undergrad degree in art history, just this massive storage of sort of useless images otherwise. And so I can go to a Poisson painting of a river and try to utilize that as a setting for one of these tales. So in constructing these narratives mentally, it's quite natural for me to use the imagery that I rely on in my own work. Um, so I think thematically I have several ideas rolling around at once, and then I look for something in our everyday society, and specifically American society, that sort of either parallels that or highlights that as a, a reality that we're living with. And then I go to thinking about how to construct it visually. And again, just the art history for me, and it's quite personal or quite individual, but for me it's sort of been that main cache of sort of go-to settings or go-to characters. Does that make any sense? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And it's it's interesting to hear you kind of talk about the, the you know the, this process, um, you know, and just just how it evolves and and you know all the I mean, decisions the that kind of go involved. Did, it too, I actually so. just finished it last week. It was about a five month long painting. It's one of the longest I've ever done in my life. But I think that one really is pretty indicative of the whole process. I mean, I, I started out with this really strong distaste for the cynicism that was on the news each and every day about various things this past summer, um, you know, not the least of which is the economy. And I started thinking about pessimism in general and how I was so tired of it. And if there were any opportunities in my existence or in this society for really strong optimistic elements and so the pessimism led me to sort of search out really downtrodden imagery, and so I started looking at funeral paintings, and the burial at Ornan for uh, Corbet came to mind pretty quickly as a really iconic, sad, sort of dark image. And into that, I started to insert maybe some more optimistic characters. So Richard Simmons is sort of the main um, player in that. And so Richard Simmons... The, the actual title of the final piece is Richard Simmons Refusing to Participate in Our Current Cynicism. <laughs> um, so 
he's incorporated in there, and he introduces this uh, landscape, which is taken from Charlie Brown's Christmas, where Charlie Brown and Linus go to the Christmas tree farm and find this one natural tree left that Charlie Brown falls in love with, despite its obvious flaws. So I think that one really pretty clearly aligns with my usual process, or at least for the past year, few years or so. Well, and it, it makes me think too that you could you could easily, if you wanted to be, um, you know, just exploitive, um, just what a series of political based and or corporate tied kind of cult, you know what I mean? Like a, like an image in terms of talking about the the political system and how it's tied up in corporations and lobbyists and yeah. and this perception of what their interests are. I mean, I. I Obviously, I don't, I don't know that that's something that's interesting to you, but I would think that there'd be a lot of people that, that could be into it because, you know, um, we do kind of live in our currently in this, this time where, you know, to be honest, I, I don't, there's days where I kind of think about what's going on and I'm just dumbfounded as to, yeah. <laughs> to you anything. You want to shut down because you're sort of constantly bombarded by that. And, you know, as much as I am interested in that and as much as it might, feel me at the earlier stages ultimately I want my paintings to be sort of uplifting sure and maybe that that's where the humor comes back into it that it's you get to think about serious things but you can sort of leave with a nice thought or a nice taste sure well and, and the I guess can kind of continue um, continue on that um, or at least a, a tangential thing you know did you did you ever think that you'd be making you know, or at least spending so much time making these paintings? I mean... No, I didn't. I mean, if you would have told me when I started grad school that I'd be making hyper-realistic or hyper-representational, maybe more accurate, like, long-term paintings, I would have said you're insane. I mean, there's got to be an immediacy, there's got to be a sincerity in the mark and all of these things, which, you know, I still agree with and believe in for the most part, but I realized that, you know, for somebody to buy into my convoluted ideas mm-hmm. and my convoluted sense of humor, I myself need to be able to buy into it. And, you know, if I can't convince myself that spending five months doing a painting is right, then I need to think of a new idea and a new concept to start from. Um, so, you know, I think when... I came out of grad school, I was doing these miniatures. I mean, some of them got as small as like an inch by inch. Um, I really saw them as these devotional little objects and pouring my heart and soul into completing something that tiny that may be sort of inconsequential for most. Um, seemed like this really inspiring breakthrough. And so that process and the, the idea of miniatures and everything is sort of carried through even though the work's gotten bigger. I mean, the Richard Simmons piece I just mentioned is about nine inches tall, but it's 48 inches or so long. And so it's, you know, there was actually a time, I guess it would have been last spring, I had an assistant, and one day she was watching me paint, and she sort of measured off a, a square inch and had me paint within that to completion, and she figured out that I put about 400 brush marks in a square inch. Jeez. And, you know, I really was excited by that. It wasn't frustrating at all for me. I mean, 
I have devoted everything of myself to that square inch, and therefore I think it can carry the weight of the message pretty well. Right. And you, you don't ever actually log anything. I, I have kind of a silly story on that. I, at some point, um, had dropped off a of work um, on consignment and um, was being challenged on my prices because of somebody else and, you know, how much how much more it must have taken them to to paint <laughs> something. So my, therefore my work isn't good, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be the same price. And cool. so I started logging like even just minutes and, and kinds of working through something. Do you ever do that or would that be too frightening? <laughs> I don't know if it'd be frightening. I think it'd be depressing. You know? <laughs> Partially because, you know, it, it does take a lot of time and it does sort of suck away some of my life, but more so because I don't think it should take me as long as it does to do what I do. I mean, five-month painting, I'm sure if I had been more focused and hadn't been distracted by shiny things next to me or my Rubik's Cube, mm -hmm. I would have done it in maybe two months. And so I don't want to remind myself that I've wasted that much of my time doing inconsequential things. Well, in that, in that sense, too, I mean, what... Um, so obviously you've talked a little bit about uh, teaching, but... Um, is that is that kind of kind of primarily the biggest thing that that kind of challenges your studio practice in terms of managing time? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, no, I wouldn't say it is because I, I I'm probably I can admit I'm not the greatest teacher in the world. I, I do the best job I can, but I think I've really been able to manage over the last three years to prioritize my time in that sense. So my office hours are by appointment only, that type of thing, so that I can be in the studio unless I get an email from a student. Um, and, you know, you learn where to spend your time and how to spend it. So I don't think that the teaching is the main drag. I think it's maybe, for me, it's split between a few things. I think TV is a huge drag on my time. Um, <laughs> Got to get a TV in the studio, Adam. No, wait. You gotta, no, just no. listen to Ben Ben Gardner. Uh, I watch it 24 hours a day. I think <laughs> that my own insecurities are probably a huge waste of my time as well. Mm -hmm. you know, if I convince myself that I'm not going down the right track, I'll spend days upon days trying to figure out the correct thing to do, only to fall back to the original idea. And, you know, I think it's difficult and. There's also, I mean, I'm married not necessarily that long ago, so I feel like I'm still falling in love and sort of wanting to spend time with my wife at any chance I can, and that would never be a negative drain on my time, but it's something that I've prioritized over painting quite a bit, sure. something I would never regret. But yeah. Well, and so I think, you know, this last, this last question, or at least anyways, about the studio work, I think is going to tie into something that we've kind of talked about, because... You know, it seems like even just kind of talking about a number of, you know, or talking to a number of artists on here and obviously, you know, just being an artist and, and talking to them and, and looking at them and and all of that stuff. Um, it seems that a lot of people are really interested in, in kind of challenging, you know, the past. But then it sounds like, and it, it sounds like something similar to what I think is that you know, despite that, that we, we kind of live in this world where we can kind of view it very pessimistically, there's, there's like this almost sense of optimism by doing, I guess, what it is that we're doing, you know, um, 
and you kind of talk about it in a way that that seems very loving and, and I can kind of completely relate because you know it's like when I'm in a painting it's not it's not fun it's I mean most of my fun is is just uh, screwing around with compositions and just being like you know let's see if I do this and can pull this off because it looks weird to me um, but you know but in the end it's just you know however long it takes to kind of work through something it's it, I don't know I kind of I kind of get it done and, and can kind of reflect on it. But aside from that, you know, in terms of just culture, like I feel it like, that it's like a, that it is a positive, you know, even, even though I think that, you know, the strip mall, uh, especially area that I live in strip malls and industrial parks. And, you know, if anybody's ever done any, any, um, investigation into urban planning, um, in the suburbs, as opposed to like city, you know, you realize that it's it's such an, a weird constructed world. You know, something that, that seems really kind of removed and especially depressing. Um, but at the same time, even 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 though there's all of that, for for whatever reason, I find a way to kind of I don't know. Like I feel very optimistic. You know, like if we, if we all just got to if we all just got on the same page, this place would be you know, the most awesomest place ever, you know? Um, and so, I mean, you know, obviously you've talked a little bit about how, how you're optimistic about your work and kind of what, what kind of readings you want out of it. Um, you know, what kind of feedback do you get from people? Is that important? Do you, do you find that it's something that you can influence or is it just something that you at this point are just kind of reflecting on? Uh, the feedback, it varies. Um, you know, I've gotten write-ups that have compared me to Fox News and Rupert Murdoch and the way that I lie in my work. Um, but I've also had people fall in love with the humor. Uh, the last show I had with a lot of the biblical references tied in with Abraham and Abraham Lincoln, I had two nuns come through, and I didn't get to hear much of what they were saying, but it was just amazing to watch them sort of stand in front of each painting and try to break it down and reference the biblical titles. Um, you know, I think that when it comes to optimism, you know, we as artists serve a really particular role that there are people in our society, you know, doctors, EMS, uh, technicians, those types of folks that have to serve a role that I'm incapable of doing. And so I sort of see it as my job to take the time and, and maybe look at certain aspects of reality or our life, our societal life, uh, that they don't have the occasion or maybe the, the ability to do. And, you know, and so in presenting my bizarre world or my humorous world to them, you know, maybe it offers them a way to sort of, again, um, sort of enlarge their view of my world or with their world maybe so I think we're doing good work uh, necessary work we serve a purpose I don't know if people always value it I don't know if I'm overvaluing it but right. uh, you know I think that I still feel like it's a necessary endeavor um, and you know I, I, sort of an interesting side story about optimism we have pretty philosophical conversations in my advanced painting class and the other day we were talking about righteousness and whether it was a negative thing or a positive thing and um, one of my older students was asked you know if she felt 
pessimistic or optimistic about the world that we live in today. And she started talking very sincerely about the sort of pessimism that she felt based on what was happening in society and what she had grown up with and everything. Um, and at the end of the conversation, she asked us to bring in 10 things that would make her feel more optimistic about the world. And so, you know, to avoid the really cliche things like puppies and kittens, um, some of the students did a decent amount of research and we came up with things, um, just more maybe narrative-based things, stories of people doing good for others. But for me and my own research, you know, falling in love with the idea of the Voyager spacecrafts and the fact that in the 70s they were sent out to become the sort of furthest human-made objects ever and that on top of them or next to them that was attached this sort of golden record of everything that was fantastic about humanity and so it's like all of these greetings to extraterrestrial life in various languages with images that covered everything from a mother breastfeeding to uh, athletes in the Olympics and things along those lines and sort of this optimistic research um, the X Prize Foundation, the idea that there are actually people and corporations out there that are willing to put money behind an investigation of bettering human life. Um, you know, there's just a sort of surprisingly decent amount of things to be optimistic about if you can take the time to look for them, and maybe that's my job as an artist. So if somebody else has so much else on their plate, maybe I can take the time for them to... Sure. Bright points of our society. Sure. Well, and you know, um, not to bring us down here, Adam, um, but just I don't know, just just listening to these things, it's kind of bringing up ideas for me um, because you know, um, having having had my favorite art history art history course, uh, a little shout out to John Decker here um, (laughs) for my my first my first uh, art history course in graduate school that I reluctantly took. churches and monasteries as visual patrons um really amazing course um but one of the things that i really learned from that um you know is that in terms of uh uh, the catholic mass or you know that that high mass that they're that most of the audience you know couldn't understand the language um they couldn't read and so you you learn that symbols and and seeing things visually are, are the ways for them to kind of really experience things but I think especially just that, that that there's a high rate of illiteracy or, you know, people, people that couldn't just go out and get that knowledge. And I think, I think one thing that's really interesting, even in terms of the way that you're kind of talking, you know, or even kind of referencing history, you know, um, I, it makes me wonder if there's really going to be a time where, where a lot of that knowledge is lost. You know, it, it's weird because even, for example, talking about this, talking to you in this, in this podcast form, um, it makes it's made me really recently think that I should try and and have a conversation with my my grandmother and record it because I don't know you know what I mean I don't know how to hold on to that family history because it's something that seems to slowly be handed down and I don't know I, I guess I just get worried about it, it kind of being wiped out and so um, and I mean that's sort of why I think I mean. You know, at some point in grad school, I was working on a series based on a tall tale of John Henry and talking to my fellow grads 
a lot of them hadn't ever heard of that. And, you know, part of my impetus at that stage was to translate for these people the, the story I had grown up with. And, you know, I think that that brings me back to the idea of longevity, the idea of making a product that's worth saving for hundreds of years, hopefully, um, making sure you do the research so that the idea is complex enough that people can find things in it for years to come. Uh, I do have to say that I'm, I'm really happy that I remind you of your grandma. That's <laughs> a really complimentary thing of you to say, Dave. Um, but, you know, well, there's a history. It's important. I think that progress is equally as important. So when we develop the next iPhone, what can we do with it to sort of preserve the things worth preserving? Sure. Well, and, and, you know, as a, as a, as a teacher, um, you know, as well, I think it's interesting to, to see, and granted, obviously all, all conditions aren't going to be necessarily equal in terms of what kind of students that you have, but, you know, there's, I think there really is such an importance to the arts that it's really, it's really sad to not see that it should be funded the way that it is because being able to, being able to think and, and, and analyze things around us. I mean, that's, that's got to be the most really important skill that you can have, yeah, which, is, which is why it makes, it makes me wonder. I mean, again, I mean, and I don't know how much of it is just being somebody being 18 years old, but I mean, you know, I, I have students that are, that are convinced that, you know, there's a lot of jobs out there in the real world where you can, you can have MP3 headphones in, <laughs> you know, during it. <laughs> Or that, or that you can miss, you know, a month of school or a month of work or something, and you'll still have some kind of job, or that, you know, that you'll actually get a job as a graphic designer someday, working on something that you really want to do, and not like designing an ad for like a new tire. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, it's it's just interesting to me because I, it's such an important part of everything to me. Yeah, and and I think that um, to talk about teaching a little bit. Over the past few years, I've definitely shifted from an emphasis or a focus on discipline and, you know, having this really rigorous structure and schedule set to every assignment or everything towards just more of a, an appreciation or a promotion of curiosity. You know, I could care less how good you are when you come into my class, but if you're genuinely curious about what you're doing, what's around you, the people that are around you, you're going to do infinitely better in the world, not just in my class, not just in school, but, you know, trying to maintain the sense of curiosity for myself in my work is also sort of one of the most important reasons behind it, I think. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, now, now, Adam, we're going to, we're going to digress into the completely pointless conversation here. Good deal. Maybe maybe not completely pointless. There's there are some good ones, but you know, um, I, I can remember sitting on a couch with you after after decorating a, a lovely Christmas tree, um, and you being very excited. But I I remember watching Escape from New York, um, and kind of being in awe with you and, and a couple other people. Um, but you know, I know that you know the holiday season's coming up. Do you have any? Any favorite, um, I guess, holiday movies? Any any favorite Christmas movies? Dave, or... I'm pretty sure you know the answer to this. It's Home Alone. Oh, really? I was going to say Uncle Buck, but I don't know if that's well, really Uncle a Christmas Buck, movie. I wouldn't necessarily call a holiday movie. But, you know, <laughs> and Hughes is a genius and connected it, with both of those. There's snow in it, so. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but 
when it comes to Home Alone, and I'm talking more about Home Alone 1, maybe a little bit of Home Alone 2, no way in hell for Home Alone 3 or 4, but <laughs> Home Alone, There's you know, four? obviously a playful story, obviously you could find some moral message in it, but one of the things that I've really fallen in love with in the past few years, if you watch it, every scene has red and green in it. Everything. And just the way that the artistic director for the movie had to set that stuff up, I mean, it's amazing. There's a conviction there that's, that's a sort of not highlighted in any way, shape, or form. I mean, it's almost sort of circumvented the slapstick kind of humor, but home alone, Dave. That's where it's at. So you, think you learn all you need from life just from that one movie. So you think there's there's a like a film class that's analyzing this like it's uh, 2001? I'm saying there's not enough film classes analyzing it. <laughs> um, any, any other worthless movies that you can't help but love? And I, I bring up Super Troopers is always sort of an old standby. I uh, hear you. The Transporter, I think that sort of falls back into the sort of masculinity and just being a, a really sort of hard edge, strict, sort of disciplined kind of character. Well. But, and I, I don't know if you've seen the, the Expendables or are a big fan of those those kinds of action movies, but I'll, I'll be happy to let you know that obviously since since Governor Schwarzenegger is no longer governor, um, I, I think from what I've heard he's going to take up a more serious role in the next movie along with Bruce Willis, but in case you haven't heard, Adam, you're also going to get to see Van Damme and Chuck Norris in that movie. How old is Chuck Norris now? Like seventy-eight? <laughs> you know, I don't know because yeah, they might just haul him around on like a like a like a gurney or something. Yeah, um, the, the stuff you can find online for Chuck Norris, just these like super hyperbole type of one-liners, those are always amazing to me. You know, at some point, I, I want to use them in, as a source of inspiration. They used to do the same thing, really similar for Tim Tebow, the, the quarterback for Denver now, but. When he was at Florida, and he was like a saint. They would talk about like, everything he could do just with his like, little finger, or like while he was sleeping, things like that. But nothing like hyperbole and masculinity in the same sort of conversation. Well, you know, Chuck Norris is pretty amazing. Yes, and indeed. It, Sidekicks was also the greatest movie ever. I've never heard of that one. What? That sounds pretty yeah. good. Um, and, it was one of Chuck Norris's early films. And to those of you that that might be listening to this, I don't know how many of you are there now. Maybe like five. But um, I, I would highly highly suggest um, just investing a little bit of time into into the world of Walker Texas Ranger. Um, and I will thank a, a friend of mine, Ben Cohan, for for really turning me on to this because I, I couldn't understand it at first, but it's got to be about the most worthless, unintended um, comedy show that you've ever seen. It, complete with complete with people that, while driving a, a truck, will punch somebody in the face and knock them out as they're, they're running away, fleeing. Um, but um, we, we do have a couple of more questions, and they will slightly take uh, a more serious tone, Adam. So, um, and this is going to be kind of like a two-parter here. So, so first of all, um, you know, who are, who are the artists that you kind of really feel um, influence you or, or, you know, kind of inform your work or 
you know, just, just things that you like to look at, but then also what was the last great, great work that you saw that just kind of blew you away? Um, first and foremost on the influences, a guy I wish had never taken up art because he's so much better at what I do than I am. Um, Mark Tanzi, uh, just the way that he's sort of gotten into hiding elements into his imagery and using all these disparate sources to create these sort of absurdist narratives. I mean, I, I fell in love with him the second I saw his work. And But again, he does it so much better than I do. Um, I think there's, you know, an African-American abstract expressionist, Norman Lewis, uh, just in the way that he handles paint and maybe also the way that he embeds a sense of purpose in what he does, even if he doesn't necessarily outwardly acknowledge it. There's sort of a, a reason behind the work he's doing, or it did. Um, he's passed away now. Um, mentioned Wayne White, just for sort of this cheeky reverence. Um, and I think that there's... I mean, the rest of the list is sort of varied and, and maybe more focused on the formal qualities of things, but Mm-hmm. You know, any of the artists that I sort of borrow from or emulate come to mind, but Mark Tansy's definitely at the top. And like I said, he's just sort of my hero at this stage. Um, and as for the piece, was that the most recent piece that was... Well, it doesn't have to be recent. It could, I mean, for me, you know, I, I think it's just something that sticks out that, you know... Really had a big impact. A, a really recent example. There was uh, there's a gallery in New Orleans called the Parks Gallery. It's a co-op run. It's relatively new. And a few weekends ago, I had I had seen a, a flyer for a show there that had one of my former students in it. So I wanted to go and support her. And uh, really, my wife and I went. We go into their main gallery space, and it's. It's still somewhat rough. It's actually about a block away from the French Quarter down here, so a lot of tourists everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, in the main gallery space, it's nothing but paintings by a single artist, so I don't see my students' work. I'm really kind of confused. And so I start walking towards the back of their space, and it's this hallway where the bathroom is and things like that, but it looks pretty dingy, dark. And Leah asks, you know, are we supposed to be going down here? I don't know if this is off-limits. And there's a door that's open at the end of the, the hallway. I look out, I look to my right, and there's three cars parked in the back alley behind this building. And I turn to her and I say, you know, maybe we're not supposed to be here. Maybe we should go the other way. And then all of a sudden I look over to the left, and there's just this massive space that's kind of hard to describe. But essentially the building next to the Parks Gallery had about a 60-foot facade. And they tore the building down but left the facade there. So from this door, we enter into this courtyard kind of an area and it's just sort of been overgrown with grass and weeds but recently chopped down. It's hidden from the street by the old building facade. It's got skyscrapers and other buildings all around it. So it's really this sort of closed-off section. And there were a few artists doing various performance pieces. There were some video pieces but the whole environment was set up to sort of be the most completely altered reality I've been in in a long time. I mean, one of the performance pieces was a woman in character, sort of as a your standard sort of stereotypical white trash character sitting in one of these uh, 
plastic folding chairs next to a truck with a TV on a milk crate, and the TV was just showing nothing but snow or fuzz. And every once in a while, she would get up and spray this truck down with this lime green house paint from like an insecticide sprayer. And, and she would proceed to wail on the side of the truck with a metal bat. And it was just the most bizarre thing. I don't know if the work itself was mm. strong. I think the message sort of got caught up in the, I don't know, the performative aspect of it all. But the experience was so amazing. Because, I mean, like I said, literally a block away, you've got the French Quarter. You've got people from Missouri and Nebraska getting drunk beyond their wildest belief. And yet here I am in this closed off sort of sheltered space with this really strange event occurring and so you know like I said I think that painting is quite traditional it still has its place but maybe there are other art forms that are more efficient or more effective at altering our understanding of our current place um, so that one really sticks out interesting <laughs> yeah I, I would think that it would you know, so it's a little little break from from the pattern and routine of life. <laughs> um, yeah, and then you go back through this painting room or this painting gallery and sort of this um, staging area where you can sort of realize, okay, I'm going to be heading back to my car now. I have to actually act like a human being, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and uh, so this kind of brings us to the end here. Um, where, where I can ask you to tell us about what's coming up, but l- let me let me ask you this too because I I forgot it. Um, you could be you could be rocking a lot of police to to get some painting done over break. <laughs> uh, we're actually going to be doing. You're talking about Christmas break, I'm assuming. Yeah, I'm 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 just you know throwing it out there. No, we're going to be traveling up to family, getting some of the traditions on. You know, uh, in terms of what's coming up, I've got. A painting at the Jonathan Farrar show for a show called the P2 Projects that sort of coincides with the Prospect 2 Biennial down here. And then next spring, I expect to be uh, included in a show at the Contemporary Art Center in New Orleans called NOLA Now. Um, still working out details on all of that. Um, and then in 2013, I have a scheduled solo show at the Jonathan Farrar Gallery. So Excellent, excellent. Between them, there'll be a lot of working. So. And, and where can we um, see more and, and find out more about you, Adam? The older work, the sort of grad school work, is available on my website, adamisock.com. And then the newer work, some of it's on the website, but also on uh, Jonathan Farrar Gallery's website. So if you just Google Jonathan Farrar Gallery, I'm under Artist Represented. Excellent, excellent. Well, um, again, thanks, Adam, for for talking this morning. Uh, It was very interesting. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Adam. You can find out more about his work, see more of his paintings by visiting adammysock.com. There will also be links available at studiobreak.wordpress.com. Once again, Free Music Archive is our music provider. We've got Travis Tyler with the Christmas song. Hope you enjoyed that. As for myself, you can always check out my work and see what's going on by visiting davidlinaway.com. And coincidentally, I have a show coming up November 20th. If you're in the Chicago area, what it is in Oak Park, please come check it out, 3 to 8. 
And again, there'll be more information at studiobreak.wordpress.com. We'll talk to you soon.